Well, let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Uh, let me just set the scene for you. Um, it's a fresh water lake. Um, you know, much like Lake Tahoe, if you've been there, or Big Bear Lake, it's somewhat closer. My wife and I have had the privilege of actually going to the Sea of Galilee five years ago after I graduated seminary. We gave ourselves a graduation gift by going on uh, our seminary's Israel trip. So we spent three days in the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret, three terms for the same body of water in northern Israel. I mean, it's beautiful. Because the freshwater lake, there isn't this uh, a surf that pounds the shores. It's very uh, still water, very quiet, quiet and peaceful. Water is very still. Now picture it in your mind. It's early morning. Remember John 20 from last week. Peter and seven, six other disciples were in that region. Christ directed them after he is raised from the dead to go, at, to, go to Galilee and he will meet them there. And they are waiting for their Lord. They're waiting to meet him. Peter is full of anxiety because he understands that he denied the Lord three times and the Lord saw it. And he's not sure if he should be there, if he's going to receive the mother of all rebukes, if Christ is going to lash out at him. So he's full of anxiety and he tells the disciples, let's go fishing. You know, we have no food, we're waiting for Christ, let's do something productive. So picture this if you will, these uh, seasoned fishermen are out in the Lake, of, Lake Gennesaret, Sea of Tiberias all night and they catch nothing. They catch nothing. Uh, last week, remember, uh, early morning, they're coming back to shore. A man walks along the shore and he says, Friends, have you caught any fish? He says, No. They answer. And the stranger calls out, Throw your nets on the right side. And they do. And they catch such a large load of fish. Fills the net. Well, um, John recognizes who this man is. He turns to Peter and he says, It's the Lord. Now, the same event, a similar event happened in Luke chapter 5 when they were fishing all night, caught nothing, and Christ tells them to draw their net on the right side and they catch a, lot, a large load of fish. Um, remember Peter's response? We read that a few, a few minutes ago. He said, Lord, away from me, I'm a sinful man. He recognized immediately the deity of Christ. The, the holiness of Christ. He understood his own sinfulness. He, he saw his depravity in light of Christ's purity and divinity. And he said, away from me. Now here in John 21, he's a man of faith. Albeit imperfect faith, albeit weak, immature faith, he is a man of faith. As soon as Peter recognizes it is Christ, what is his response? He puts on the outer cloak that he had taken off while he was fishing. He puts it, puts it on. And he can't wait for the boat to land on shore. Like a little child, he can't wait a few minutes. He jumps in the water and swims towards Christ. I mean, you see Peter's heart. I mean, I think, I mean, some of you said, James, I see myself in, in Peter. I mean, that's me. I, I am sinning. I'm weak. I do stupid things. You know, I constantly fail Christ. But man, I love Christ. I want to be with Him. I want to swim towards Him. And we see Peter swim towards Christ and yet when Peter comes on shore he can't talk to Christ because the memories of his denials flood his mind therefore that relationship is hindered so there is no conversation 
So picture it now. Our Lord is preparing breakfast. He's got fish and bread already. He tells Peter to go and uh, bring some fish that they caught. Peter brings it over. And so picture this scene, if you will. There are eight men around the fire eating breakfast by the Sea of Galilee about 2,000 years ago. One guy's wet. I picture that. You know who that guy is. And there is no conversation. It's very quiet. No one is speaking. Now, before we move on to the exposition, I want you to consider um, the graciousness of failure in this world. Um, the merciful graciousness of failure in this world. That night, they caught nothing. Most likely, they toiled all night to, to catch fish, and they caught nothing. It was God's gracious providence so that they would fail, so that Christ would provide the fish. Right? How awful it would have been if they caught a bunch of fish. They were successful in their endeavor. And yet, God mercifully saw, saw to it that they would catch nothing. Such disappointments, which to them was very grievous, in light of the progression of revelation, in light of what God revealed, we see it was God's grace. Do we see that in our own lives? How failure in the world is indeed the gracious providence of God. We're doing family worship this week with our daughters and we're going through a children's Bible. So children's Bible, the Gospels are intermixed. So I really don't know what's really coming up. And we've, I found out next study is the prodigal son. And what a joyful study with our, with our children. I was teaching them. They had pictures. I was showing the man with two sons and one son was you know, a good son. The other son was bad. And I was Elizabeth, what was he doing? He's disobeying. He was dishonoring his dad. He was going away. And the next picture is him feeding pigs. And Elizabeth, you know what happened? It was a famine and he was hungry and he was sleeping with pigs. And then he goes back to the father. And Elizabeth, is the father happy or sad? And this young boy who disobeyed his father, he repents, he confesses, he comes back. Is, is his daddy happy or sad? And he's happy. That's right. God is happy when we confess our sins. God rejoices. God delights to forgive us. When we turn to Him, no matter what we did in life, if we repent and turn to Him, God delights to forgive us of our sins. But what if He didn't lose all His possessions? What if there was no famine? What if He went out into the world and became an entrepreneurial success and made all sorts of money invested in real estate, became a large, you know, uh, major holder of a company, and he never came, then he would never come home. It was God's grace in that story that he would experience such failure. And so in praying for our daughters, we prayed that they would experience um, God's gracious providential failures in their lives that they would seek joy in this world, they would seek happiness in possessions, they would seek worldly uh, success, and they would fail, they would experience firsthand how empty this world is, how there is no true joy and contentment and satisfaction in this world, they would toil all their lives and they will catch nothing. And so in that way, God would draw these little ones to Himself. 
This is seen throughout church history. John Wesley was, he failed as a minister. I doubt he was a Christian. He came to America as a minister of the gospel. He wasn't a Christian. And was utterly unsuccessful. He went back to England, dejected, discouraged. And there he found Christ. What about Augustine? He tried all his life to be a moral man. Tried to fight against his lust, against immorality. Unsuccessful. He came to an end in himself. And it was then his heart was open. And God saved him through Romans 1. What about Keith Green? Okay, I know his, some of his you know, doctrines are kind of funny, but man, I love his songs. I love his passion. I love his heart. You know, as a young man, I think at 17, he was covered by Time magazine. If you read his book, No Compromise. They considered him a prodigy in terms of uh, playing the piano as a songwriter. But yet his career never took off. He never made it. He was never successful. And then, in that context, in that state, God saved him. He wrote about it later in one of his songs. Like a foolish dreamer trying to build a highway to the sky, all my hopes would come tumbling down, and I never knew just why. Until today, when you pulled away the clouds that hung like curtains on my eyes, I was blind. All these wasted years, when I thought I was so wise, then you took me by surprise. Like waking up from the longest dream, how real it seemed until your love broke through. I've been lost in a fantasy that blinded me until your love broke through. When I ask you, what failure have you experienced in the world? And you, can you say, that's the grace of God. Oh, that's the love of God. I thank God for my failure because it was through that He drew me to Him. What failures, disappointments, what heartaches are you experiencing today? Whether in the past or currently, let's not be bitter. Not be angry or resentful that you're working so hard but you're catching nothing. Can you see it? It's God's grace. Right? It's the merciful providence of God that He might, through word and through life, draw you to Himself. Now eight men are gathered around a small fire. They are warming themselves at the fire. They are eating fish and bread. They are eating quietly. No one is talking. They are having a nice quiet breakfast. And I thought it was very interesting that our Lord raises this important question to Peter after breakfast. I, mean, I just see wisdom in that, right? I mean, let's eat first, right? They were important conversation to have. Very important, but... I mean, our Lord's a guy. Let's eat first. Right? It been improper to bring up this conversation before breakfast they're hungry. Or in the middle of breakfast you've got a fish in one hand and bread and you're talking about do you love me? I mean, the wisdom of Christ. Ministry insight here. Finish the meal before you get into any deep conversation. They finish breakfast. They're done. Jesus said to Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, does not call him by the name that Christ gave, it, gave him in John 1.42. It's only the second time Christ calls Peter by this name. It's the name that others called him before he became a Christian, before he became a disciple of Christ. Simon, son of John. He was known as Simon. Christ says, you will no longer be Simon. You'll be Cephas. You'll be Peter. You'll be Petros. You'll be a rock. But here in John 21, he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him by the name that which he was known previous to his discipleship. 
And he uses his full name, kind of like getting his attention. Stand the Lord, young man. I have some important questions for you. I want you to listen. Stop fidgeting, right? Stop being distracted. Turn your attention fully to me. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? A very simple question. Do you love me more than these? Three proposed meanings to this simple question. Peter, do you love me more than you love fishing? Right? You're back to your old occupation, your old pursuit. I called you in John 1, Luke 5, to be fishers of men. Here you are, trying to catch fish. Do you love me more, or do you love fishing more? Second possible interpretation is, do you love me more than you love these men? Right? I know you love John. You're dear friends of mine, friends of yours. Andrew's your brother. Right? Nathaniel, Thomas, you love these men, but do you love me more? Is that the question? Or is the question, do you love me more than these men love me? That's the question that Christ is asking. Do you love me more than Nathaniel, Thomas, Andrew, John, and these men love me? Now, why that question? Because the last time they talked, in their last conversation, that is exactly what Peter said. In Matthew 26.31, Peter said, Even if all of these men deny you, I will not deny you. Because my love for you is greater. My loyalty, my commitment, my affections, my, my, my commitment to you is far greater than these men. So these men, I understand, their love for you is shallow, not me. I will not deny you. And Christ said, Peter, what are you talking about? You will deny me three times. Peter said, no, even if I have to die for you, I will never, ever deny you. So Christ is asking. That was our last conversation. Peter, is that true? Do you really love me more than these men love me? Peter, did you do what you promised to do? You promised that you will never deny me. Did you do that? Did you do something different than these men? These men ran away from me. They fled in my, in the hour of my greatest pain and need. Well, what did you do, Peter? Peter, you stated that semi-privately and before these men. Therefore, I'm going to ask you this question, not privately, but in the presence of these men. Do you really love me more than these men love me? And our Lord used the word agape in the Greek. Love of choice, love of will. <coughs> the purest, richest, and truest love. Sacrificial love. Peter, do you agape love me more than these men Agape, love me. Unconditional love. Now why is Christ bringing up this embarrassing, shameful event in Peter's life? Is our Lord rubbing it in? Hey Peter, who was right? You said I was wrong? You said I didn't know what I was talking about? Peter, I want you to eat your words. Right? I want you to say who was right and who was wrong. Is he reveling in the fact that Christ was right and Peter was wrong. No, our Lord is not motivated by such childish impulses. Our Lord brings up this upsetting issue because, for I believe, three reasons. For three reasons. I believe the first reason it brings this up is because of the utmost importance 
of loving Christ as a follower of Christ. He wants to highlight the highest place, love for Christ, where it belongs for, the, for a follower of Christ. Right? That's the most important thing. Remember church at Ephesus and Revelation 2? This, this small band of believers, faithful to Christ, sound doctrine, right? committed to right life, our Lord has had one condemnation, one rebuke, one strong admonition against them. He said to them, I hold this one thing against you. And what was that? You have forsaken your first love. Matthew 10.37 Our Lord said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You must love me more than your parents. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I must be first place. Even above your own children. He did not ask, Simon, son of John, do you fear me? Do you adore me? Do you admire me? His question was simple. Do you love me? Do you love me? This is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. Love is one of the very best evidences and one of the easiest signs of discerning whether one is a Christian. He that lacks love for Christ must also lack every other grace in the proportion in which he also lacks love. If love is little, then faith is little. If love doesn't exist, faith doesn't exist. Love to Christ is one of the most important graces that can adorn a Christian. Without it, right doctrine, zeal for evangelism, knowledge of the Bible, eloquence, diligence in ministry are worth very little and will do very little good. He brought this question to bear because of the utmost place in discipleship, the love for Christ. Second reason, I believe, is to point out the importance of humility and true sanctification. <laughs> the importance of humility and true sanctification. He wanted to confront Peter's pride, his brash self-confidence, his presumptuousness, his high view of his himself, his high view of his love for Christ. He wanted to press that point and highlight the importance of humility, the opposite virtue of pride, the opposite heart condition. For without it, true maturity in Christ is impossible. Is impossible. Because Christian growth is indeed downward. It is the journey to the valley. It's becoming less. It's decreasing so that Christ might increase. Let me think about that. Um, we'll look at First Peter 5 later, but just one verse for all of us here. Um, and Because Peter says this, um, in the context of his life, we can understand the importance of these words. Peter said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're proud, if you're arrogant, you're dependent on the flesh, God is against you. God is not on your side. 
God is opposed to you. If you're lowly, contrite, you're meek. I saw Isaiah 59, you tremble at the word of God. You consider yourself the worst of all sinners. You're like the tax collector at the last row of the synagogue, beating his chest, Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner. And God gives you grace. So Christ brought this issue up, not to like embarrass Peter, but to highlight to him and to all of us the importance of humility in our Christian lives. That it's not just a virtue that we just tack on among many of the virtues. It is the virtue without which true growth in Christ is impossible. And thirdly, our Lord brought this question to bear to point out that humility is essential. It's an essential characteristic to be a useful shepherd, to be a useful leader in Christ's church. You know, for me, uh, nothing is more important. You know, my heart, my heart, my heart, my, my prayer request is always humility because I know that to the degree of my humility, God will use me. To the degree of my pride, I am useless to Christ. Pride utterly disqualifies a man in the ministry, makes him unreservedly ineffective in the Lord's work. But humble love uniquely qualifies a man for Christian service. A commentator named Scott, I think it was someone from the 18th century, said, Those who have been greatly tempted and have had much humbling experience of their own sinfulness and have had much forgiven them, generally prove the most tender, compassionate, and attentive pastors of weak, bruised, and trembling believers. For the rest of his life, Peter was well equipped to empathize with others' weaknesses because he had been there. By that experience of denying the Lord three times, he learned to be compassionate, tender-hearted, gracious, kind, empathizing, sympathizing with those who were lacerated by sin and personal failure. I mean, if I was around at that time and I could choose who I wanted to be my pastor, if I could choose who I wanted to be my discipler, I would choose Peter because he would be gracious, right? He'll be understanding. He'll be forgiving towards me. No matter how much I messed up, I could always say Matthew 26, right? And he would be understanding, right? But someone who is struggling with pride, it would be difficult. It would be difficult for me to open my life to Him, share honestly of who I am uh, as a human being, as a sinner. I, I would have to, I have to perform in front of Him. I have to act like a better Christian than I am because of His outward persona. But Peter, I can openly share my life because no matter what I share, I'll never go to the depths of Matthew 26. Right? Humility is essential to be an effective, God-honoring shepherd of Christ's church. Well, our Lord asked Peter that thunderous question, do you love me more than these men love me? And Peter, I mean, he got a mildest man. He doesn't cry and whimper and walk away. He doesn't go back for another swim, you know. He, he stands his ground, verse 15, and he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, he uses a different Greek word here. He uses phileo, deep affection. 
Now, I know a notable commentator has said that in the Gospel of John, agape and phileo are used interchangeably. And for us to read into this is to wrongly interpret John 21. Well, I disagree. Two different words are used. Even though they're often used interchangeably in the Gospel of John, in this context of Peter's restoration, I have to believe there is significance. That Christ would say agape, and Peter does not use the same word. Peter can't. Peter dare not, in light of his failures. Peter's response is, I phileo love you. I have deep affection for you. Yes, I love you, Lord. But I cannot say agape. He couldn't say agape love you because the memory of his denials was, were still, was still fresh in his mind. <coughs> How can he say, I agape love you in light of his denials? And you see right away Peter's humility. You see right away Peter's lowliness. Peter there is not, presumes not to say agape, he says phileo. Before he was confident in his love for Christ, I'll die for you. No questions about my love. Now, Lord, the best I can do is phileo love you. Will I die for you? I hope to. I want to. I can't promise that. All I can say is that deep, deep affection for you I, I, I question my love. You know, one of the ways, you know, the church has grown to a size where I, it's hard for me to have a personal relationship with everyone in the church. And one of the ways that I try to love everyone is when I, if I get a chance to talk with you, I want to remember our conversation. I want to remember that time because as a shepherd, it's my way of showing my love for you. Right? If I talk to you and I forget, you know, like, our, that's not love. Well, three months ago, before Huey's wedding, I had a talk with Ryan Baconis. Five minutes before the wedding. And I was saying, hey Ryan, how's it going? How, you're new to Cornerstone. How's it been coming along? He said, it's been great. You know, I grew up in the church, Pastor James, but I never questioned my love for Christ. I always, I was confident in my love for Christ. Except for my, my Christian faith was somewhat weak. But coming to Cornerstone was the first time where I questioned whether I really love Christ. And I questioned the quantity and the quality and the depth of my love. And I said, Ryan, that's great. That means you're growing as a Christian. That means you're maturing in Christ. That means you are growing in humility. Right? And that God is on your side. Spurgeon said this, I do not approve of the man that says, I know I love Christ. I do not approve of that man. I never have a doubt about it, someone who says that, because we have reason often to doubt ourselves. A believer's strong faith is not a strong faith in his own love for Christ. It is a strong faith in Christ's love to him. There is no faith which always believes that it loves Christ. I believe the higher a man is in grace, the lower he will be of his own esteem and he will be the last person to claim any supremacy over others in the divine grace of loving Christ. Mark how Peter answered. He did not answer to the quantity nor the quality of love, but he answered in the affirmity 
and the affirmation and the definite presence of love for Christ, his answer was, Lord, I don't know if I love you more or less. I don't know if I love you more than John or less than Thomas or, or more than Nathaniel. I don't know. But yes, Lord, what I do know is, I phileo you. I do love you. There is love for you in my heart. Deep affection for you, Lord. Verse 16, Peter, Lord said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now this time, our Lord doesn't say, do you love me more than Nathaniel or, 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 or Andrew or, or anyone else. He just asked, do you love me? Do you agape me then? Peter's response again, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Lord, I can't say agape. My failure, my denials, my humility won't allow it. I phileo you. Third time, verse 17, he said to him third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Okay. Do you love me more than these agape? Do you love me agape? Okay. Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you have deep affection for me? Peter was sad. Peter was grieved because he was asked a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Right. I love what Peter says here. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, last time they talked, Peter said, Lord, old man, you don't know anything. You don't know my heart. I'll die for you. I'll never deny you. Christ said, no, 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 you're going to deny me three times. No, 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 you don't know, Lord. Right? You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what's in my heart. You don't know my love for you. You can't judge that. I love you and I'll die for you. What are you talking about? What pride? Here, Peter's response, Lord, you know everything. You even know my heart. And so he appeals to Christ's omniscience. You know that I love you. Amazing, isn't it? Like when I was a child, you know, growing up in Sunday school, God's omniscience was a doctrine of terror for me. I was afraid that God knew everything. I remember I was going to my closet, you know, trying to hide from God, and man, God knows everything. Oh man, oh, He knows that too. He knows what I said. He knows, right? I was like, I was like trying to run away from God. I couldn't hide from God. Now, as a maturing believer, hopefully a maturing believer, the doctrine of God's omniscience is the most one of the most comforting doctrines. Because at the depth of my sinfulness, you know, when I blow it, you know, when I just, you know, yell at a guy for cutting me off, or I'm yelling inside, I'm like, you know, holy wrath inside, you know, because someone cuts me off, or, you know, all those sinful things that come out in times of like, you know, weakness, and I'm like dejected and disappointed in myself, I can appeal to Christ's omniscience. Lord, you know that I do love you. You can't see by my life right now. You can't tell by how I'm acting. But Lord, I appeal to your omniscience. You know everything. You know that I love you. I believe this is the test point between a hypocrite and a true Christian. A test point between a hypocrite and you. A hypocrite will say, well, my pastor knows I love you. My parents, ask them. 
my friends, ask my wife, ask my husband, ask my children. They'll tell you how much I love for you. Because of all the things that I do, it's obvious I love you. But a hypocrite cannot say, cannot appeal to Christ's omniscience. Hypocrite, they need to understand. 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in men of, tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a clanging gong or a clanging noisy cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge. If I have faith to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, have not love, I gain nothing. The real Christian can and will appeal to Christ's omniscience. Lord, you know everything. You know my heart, you know my life, you know how little my faith is, you know all my sins. You know how little I pray, how little I give, how little I serve. You know how just shallow my Christian life is, but you know that I love you. Our Lord responded to each of His professions of love with a charge, with a commission, with a command to Peter. Verse 15, our Lord said to Peter, Feed my lambs. It means to... ah. Give nourishment to the flock. Give spiritual food to the people of God. Verse 16, there's a change in the Greek word. Tend my sheep. Denotes rather the care, guidance and protection the shepherd extends to his flock. And then verse 17, the last one. Three questions, three charges to cancel the three denials. Feed my sheep. Furnish food for the soul of the church and care for the church. Right? Care for the church. Right. In this way, um, Peter was restored. Peter was uh, commissioned to be an apostle, leader of the apostles and commissioned to be an elder of Christ's church. What qualified him? wasn't some valiant effort, some courageous stand. It wasn't knowing you know, the outline and themes of the 66 books of the Old New Testament. What qualified Peter was his humility, his lowliness, his simple love for Christ. Let me ask you just to close our time, three simple questions. Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? The question is not, do you serve the church? It's not, do you preach? You know, can you preach the Bible without loving Christ? Yes, you can. Can you lead God's people and serve and shepherd them without loving Christ? Oh, yes. That's so very possible. It's not, do you read the Bible, study the Bible? Can you study the Bible verse by verse and not love Christ? Can you evangelize and share the gospel here and all over the world without loving Christ? Yes. So the question is not whether you evangelize. The question is not whether you read or study the Bible. The question is, do you love Christ? What is your answer? Is it a confident answer? Or is it a lowly, contrite, humble response? Sincerely 
appealing to Christ's omniscience. Can you appeal to Christ's omniscience? He knows everything about you. He knows your life. He knows your heart. And can you with a clear conscience say, you know that I love you? Or is your answer, Lord, you know that I don't love you. That I'm, and I'm doing all of this for myself. Lord, it's all about me. The whole, whole thing, everything I do, as a supposed Christian, it's love for myself. If that's the case, opportunity for you to repent and answer that question and say, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I love you, help me in my love. Help me to take up my cross, deny myself, and love you follow you first question is simply do you love Christ secondly we see in Christ's charge to Peter that love for Christ is demonstrated is to be demonstrated in relationship to the church in relation to the church if you love Christ then you are called to love God's people love for Christ never bypasses the church. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Take care of my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my dear sheep. It's the diminutive sheep. So the sense where Christ is, is saying the sheep with a sense of affection. Right? Feed my little ones, my dear sheep. If you say you love Christ, but you don't love the church, you have to seriously question your love for Christ. You say you're committed to Christ, but you're half-hearted in your devotion to the church. That's, that's not, that's contrary to the Bible. Our Lord has no category for that in the scriptures. For Christ, the church is the, is His body. It's Himself. Therefore, loving Christ means loving the church. If you say, I love God whom i never seen, but I don't love Christians whom I have seen, First John says, you are deceived, you are a liar, you don't have true love for God. Because love for God, love for Christ, is demonstrated and lived out by loving the church. And finally, humility. Question of humility. Uh, we talked about that last week. Let me just uh, share with you Puritan Walter Craddock's description of a humble man. He gives you uh, four descriptions of a humble man. And so practically, how does humility look like in our attitude, in our mindset? How do we practice humility in the way we think? First of all, when he looks upon another that is a sinner, he considers that he has been worse. <coughs> When you, so when we look at a non-Christian, look at them defiantly opposing Christ, our response is not anger, it's not self-righteousness. Our response is, I was worse. I was far worse. Secondly, a humble heart thinks himself to be worse still. I am the worst of sinners. Not, I was worse. Even now, apart from Christ, I am far worse than that man, that woman who is living in sin. 
Third, it is God who made me and not anything of myself. Everything I have, all my talents, all my abilities, God has given to me by grace. And my faith, my salvation, my ministry, it's all by grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't create it. It was given to me by God. And then finally, he considers himself the lowliest of all sinners in the company of believers. How does humility play out? You're eating lunch and you see yourself as the weakest believer. You see yourself as the worst sinner. You see yourself as the most undeserving, unworthy. You don't walk with a swagger holding your chest high. You work... You walk lowly with head bent because everyone is so righteous and you are indeed the worst sinner, worst of all sinners whom God chose to save all to his own glory. Let's pray. I want to close our time with a Puritan prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the heights with Thee, but in the depths with me. Hemmed in by the mountains of my sin, I yet behold Thy glory. Lord, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of clearest vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Amen.